0: Appreciate uh, appreciate the worship set and the worship team, and Dave, as you shared some fitting thoughts and, and comments, and um, there's probably a lot of people in this room that don't know Dan Radonski really well. There's some that do. Um, we've gotten to know him over the last several years, and they're kind of a little hit and miss, a lot based upon um, some of his health struggles, but... Um, This last year, this last fall, uh, actually for the last two or three years actually, Dan's been a little bit of a a regular figure out at the farm. Um, He would come out hunting out at our place for the last few years. and uh, Never known him to actually shoot anything. Um, And I I say that a little bit on the funny side. Uh, Because he would take his pickup because his health struggles kind of really limited him. And so he asked me one day after church, he says, uh, this was several years ago, he says, hey, do you have a place that I could come out and go hunting where I can just, like, drive right out there? And I don't have to get out of my truck. I don't have to walk very far. I said, uh, yeah, we have 300 acres that are kind of like that. And so come on out. Let's see what happens. And so for a couple of years, he never got anything. But this last fall, this last fall was Dan's year to uh, to uh, ring in a, a real dandy buck. And uh, I was really, he was... He was literally just beaming from ear to ear. He was so excited, and and uh, just as it happened, I, and I told him, I said, "Hey, if you're ever in a situation where you need some help, or if I hear gunshots, I'd, you know, I'll come. If I'm hunting here, I'll come on over and and help you out." Yeah, no problem, no problem. It was one day I wasn't there, one evening I wasn't there, and uh, but he had a uh, relative, a brother, or cousin, or somebody was with him, and helped him do the muscle work. And uh, he said it was quite a chore. Now this is a guy that's. You know, in the midst of suffering, with uh, liver that's shutting down, and, and all that kind of goes with that. And uh, but it was so happy for him to actually, you know, get a get rewarded for his efforts in that way. And and I want to say this about Dan, and I say this about anybody that passes on. That's a that's a Christ follower. Today is the best day of Dan's life, and tomorrow will be the best day of Dan's life, and the day after that, and the day and the weeks and the months and the, into eternity. He's having the time of his life, and that's why, as believers, uh, we can grieve, and but we grieve with hope, because we're looking forward to that, too. Uh, yesterday was his last day of rehearsal, onto the show, as they say, and uh, that's where Dan is, and we definitely want to surround Michelle and, and the boys and the rest of the family with our prayers, with our support as a church, as a uh, um, Seeing that their needs are taken care of, but but really continuing to encourage them um, with the solid truth that comes from the word, uh, combined with tender hearts and tender hugs, as it was, and as it is. And uh, we've been studying through first Peter, now into second Peter, and we finished chapter one uh, last week. I have a quote that I want to read as we get going. Before we get to chapter 2, this quote comes from David Gusick, a pastor down in California. It says, A morally clean life begins by taking heed, paying attention, you know, understanding what's going on around us. So morally clean life begins by taking heed. A life of moral purity doesn't happen accidentally. If one doesn't take heed, the natural path is towards impurity and degeneration. The foundation for a morally pure life is the foundation in God's Word. It's the foundation of the Bible. And that quote gets us kick-started into this epic passage by the Apostle Peter. And if you've not read Second Peter chapter 2, I'll give you this much warning... Peter's holding a blowtorch into the face of false prophets of his day. He's literally saying to the church, this is what it's going to be like, this is what they're going to teach, and this is how they're going to teach, and this is how they're going to live. He says, so beware. And there's this massively long list stuffed full of traits of false teachers and false prophets. And he's just going to go right at it, He's going to jump right in there. And there's a lot of actually amazing continuity between what Peter says. And I've said that often through this series. This great continuity between Peter and Paul in the way that they uh, lead the church, in the way they encourage the church, in the way that they've taught the church, in the way that they write to the church. And where we see Peter talking here out of 2 Peter 2, his farewell address so he wants to get everything out that he wants to talk about. It's really consistent with Acts chapter 20 and the things that Paul says as he's actually gearing up to physically depart from Ephesus. We'll get into that in a minute. But we're kind of lined out three myths that Peter tackles in this short epistle. Myth number one, we looked at this last week, it's the apostles made all these stories up. That was a myth in that first century. It, that myth has not gone away. Not at all. It doesn't take much to turn on the news. It doesn't, especially during a, a holiday. Uh, if you want to see some myths get spread about, watch the History Channel during Easter, during the resurrection, you know, that week or two weeks prior or, or prior to Christmas. Uh, you, will see, you will see social myths that line up with the, real, the, 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 the fictional reality of what our society thinks anyway, is that the apostles just made all these stories about Jesus up. It's not really real. It's just made up. They just made up these stories. Because they don't know where the body is, so they had to say something. And we don't know where the body is 2,000 years later, so we got to say something. And so this whole thing is a myth. That's what society will teach you. hasn't gone away. But that was alive and well in that first century. Peter's rebuttal, as we looked at last week, just by... Way of uh, review with Second Peter 1, 16 through21, where Peter says these two emphatic statements, I'm a personal eyewitness to what's happened. Tam, will you give me something to drink? I'm a pe- personal eyewitness to, what, to, to, to Jesus' majesty. I've seen the miracles. I've seen the oh, and in a glass jar, with ice. and lemon. he's got it going on. Peter says I'm an eyewitness testimony to how awesome Jesus is and to who he really is. He's the King of Kings. He's the third member of the or the second member of the Godhead. He's the son, the Father, son, and the Holy Spirit. That's who Jesus is. He saw his glory on the mountain that he talks about here in chapter 1. He saw him transfigured into who he really is. And he also talks about Towards the end of chapter one, Peter talks about the fact that this is all a uh, consistent with Old Testament prophetic passages that were confirmed by Jesus. It all fits together. So Peter's really saying, "Hey, hey! You think this is a myth? Put the jigsaw puzzle together. Jesus is the only one that perfectly put all of these prophetic pieces together." that were written by dozens of guys over, uh, uh, over you know hundreds, thousands of years. He's the only one that has fulfilled those completely and without fail. Other people have claimed to do that, but Peter's saying, in essence, and my summary, is, is that he's the only one that's really accomplished it. So there's two aspects to that, debunking that myth number one. This week we're going to jump into myth number two, and that myth is all about chapter two and it's this idea that god's not really going to punish the wicked and he's not really going to deliver the righteous that was the myth that was going around in the first century surprisingly enough it shouldn't catch us by surprise that's still a myth today that god's not really going to deal with the wicked if god was really going to deal with the wicked you know why didn't he take care of this person why didn't he deal with why why didn't he stop Hitler sooner. If God was really going to deal with the with the wicked, why why did he not why didn't he didn't he stop Stalin a little sooner so so many people wouldn't have to die. If God was really going to protect the innocent, why wouldn't he dealt with Jeffrey uh, Epstein a little sooner or Jeffrey Dahmer a little sooner. So God's not re- this is this is what our society would say. God's not really going to deal with the wicked. And because he's not really going to deal with the wicked, he's not really going to deliver the righteous either. If God was going to deliver the righteous, our society says, why, why have so many people been martyred on God's behalf? They surely weren't delivered, were they? I think if we could pick one out of our mind, like Jim Elliott, and talk to Jim Elliott for just a few minutes and ask him uh, one question. Jim, are you delivered today? He would say, absolutely, I'm having the best day of my life. And tomorrow's going to be better. Right? So this is a myth that was going around. It's a myth that's still alive and well. All three of these myths, we'll get into the third one next week. All three of these myths are still current in today's culture as well. Second Peter, perhaps, is the single biggest expose on the idea of false prophets and false teachers. And Peter does a masterful job of really weaving this idea of the wicked into the idea of false teachers and false prophets. How do we even recognize false teachers today? How, how, I, I mean, I think that we can honestly say, hey, there's, there's some things out there. It's not too hard to take the Bible and, and hold it up to what people are teaching and say, that's, that's not consistent. That's not real. So some of them are easier to spot than others, I think. Some of them are a lot more subtle. Peter's going to talk about that. There's two ways that we can analyze false teachers and false prophets. It's the content of their message. It's what they teach. So we have to be really good at understanding the truth, really good at discerning what's being said and how that stacks up against God's objective truth. So it's the content of their message and it's also their character. Content of their message and it's their character. How do, they, how do they carry themselves? How do they act? How do they lead? Paul calls them in Acts 20 that I referred to earlier, he, calls, he uses this term which we in Eastern Washington, especially those of us that are in the agricultural industry, we're well aware of this term. Savage wolves is what Paul calls false teachers in Acts 20 savage wolves In his final encouragement to these Ephesian elders before departing for Jerusalem Paul gives these instructions for the local leadership in dealing with false teachers and I want to use this in a way to set up and to show the consistency between the writers of the New Testament Paul says this about false teachers he says in verse 28 of chapter 20 therefore take heed of yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers the shepherd <clears throat> to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So Paul's making this strong statement saying, hey, 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 you're in leadership, that's good. You have responsibility, that's good. Here's your responsibility. You're to watch over the people, the believers that Jesus died for, the people that Jesus spilt his own blood for, those that he purchased out of the slave market to use the Old, Old Testament analogy. Those that he, that he grabbed, those that are notched, it's another term that you see if you dive into parts of the New Testament, the idea of a bondservant is they would have a notch in their ear identifying whose they were and that they had chose to stay there. Paul calls himself a bondservant. Peter calls himself a bondservant. That's who you're to watch out for. Those that shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, Paul says, verse 29, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So people are going to come in, people are maybe already here. It makes us very uncomfortable in our seats, doesn't it, when I say that? It does. This is how important this topic is. That we should be a little squirmish in our seats. I'm a little squirmish standing on the stage, even saying this. Just reading what the apostles had to say about this topic. should make us all double and triple check ourselves. And Paul says this, take heed, take heed, pay attention, to be cautious about, apply oneself to, adhere to, to attend to, to be aware, to be given to, to have regard for. That's the idea of taking heed. That this is important. This is super, this is top shelf important in the church. The idea that savage wolves were going to come in, the fact that men would come in and distort the truth and gain a following is nothing new throughout these four gospels. In fact, Jesus himself talked about it a fair amount. John ten twelve, Jesus is teaching in parables, and he's teaching about the false teachers that would be like wolves and will scatter the herd. Matthew seven fifteen, Jesus talks about false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. In other words, they're going to come in disguise. They're going to look just like everybody else. They're going to sound just like everybody else. They're going to eat just like everybody else. They're going to mill around just like everybody else. But the reality is is that they're wolves. And they have a different agenda for the church. So Jesus says, hey, heads up, guys. This is going to happen. They're going to come in sheep's clothing. And he calls them there, but are ravening wolves. Then Matthew 10, 16 and Luke... 10.3 are kind of parallel passages where Jesus is sending out his disciples knowing, and he says these terms, I'm sending you out. I'm sending you out as sheep amongst the wolves. So he's saying, hey, you have a responsibility to be in the culture, understanding who you are in me, that you're part of my herd, you're part of my flock, you're my people, but you're going to be out there with all those that have sharp teeth with all those that want to do you in. It's not a call to to seclude ourselves in that way socially. It's just a call to understand, hey, you're going to be out there in a culture that does not like you. You're going to be out there in a culture that is ran by a force that wants to devour you up, wants to devour up you, your wife, your husband, your marriage, your kids, everybody and everything that you stand for or stand by Our culture wants to devour and conform to their own image and to their own ideas. Even here in Acts 20, we see this combination of message and character. Because in verse 30, Paul talks about speaking, they're going to speak perverse things. To draw away the disciples after themselves. Their goal is to to say just enough, that's just enough different, that sounds just good enough... To siphon people off to themselves, that's their goal. That's the goal of a false teacher. Pull them to themselves for whatever reason. Motives are an interesting thing. What what propels a person to do something is a very, very interesting thing. Um, let's see if I can remember all these words. The CIA and the FBI use a, uh, what do you call it when you have like a word and then off of every letter? Acrostic, acronym. They use this term, it's it's MICE, M-I-C-E. And what these are is they're, they're four basic categories of what motivates people to do something, anything. They use them to discover who the criminals are, They use them to motivate people to do like the CIA uses them to motivate people to do their work. Uh, But M stands for oh boy, I had them all in my mind. I'll think about it. Oh yeah, here we go. It's instant recall. I got a fast processor this morning. M stands for money. There we go. I'm getting the I'm getting the lip read over here. M stands for money. Money vo- motivates people, right? Who's motivated by money? Like, there's only like five hands that sh- Here's Here's one that's really, really, really motivated by. You can put your hands down. But while I'm thinking about this, I'm really impressed that somebody stood up to have bacon at the if tables, and that was you. I was really impressed with that. Don't think I didn't forget that or didn't hear it just because I had my headphones in. Money is a motivator. Ideology is a motivator. Ideology, what we believe, what we think, what we th- you know, know is true. Ideology is what motivated like the, uh, all of these suicide bombers to do what they do. They're not motivated by the money. They're motiva- motivated by the ideology. Um, C, another thing that motivates people, this seems a little bit on the dark side, compromise. Compromise motivates people. If you're compromised and somebody's holding that over your head, it's a plot for many great movies. If you're compromised in something, got pictures of you doing something, uh, information and knowledge of you doing something, people can use that to compromise you or you're already compromised. They're going to use it to exploit you to do something that they want you to do so that they'll hold that secret for you. So compromise. So you got money, ideology, compromise. And the last one, the last one is probably more prone for us guys, and that's ego. Ego is a, a massive motivator. Because if I can appeal to your ego, if I can appeal to and, and, and pump something up that builds up something in you and, and reaches down and hits a nerve and plays these heavy notes on your ego especially the guys, especially us men, we're a little more prone to this, then then, as longer you listen to me, the more I can motivate you in a direction that I want you to go. So people are motivated by all sorts of things. This is just a dynamic of human nature more than anything else. It's something that, like I said, the CIA and the the FBI use to do what they have to do. But the reality is, is that some of these same dynamics you're going to see and play as we go through Second Peter. Like I mentioned earlier, we'll get to myth number three next week. Let's turn to Second Peter chapter 2 and look at how God works to deal with those who would distort the truth while bringing deliverance to those that are just. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to try to get through the whole... I'm going to have to talk really, really fast. You guys, while I'm reading, you pray that I start talking as fast as Katie Weithman, and this sermon will be over in about thirty minutes. All right, here we go. Second Peter two, verse one. And I want to set it up just with this sentence. Peter has just been talking about the authenticity of the old testament. prophecies and validating the old testament prophets. So that's a little bit of contrast as he turns his idea a different direction here and he says but there were also false prophets among the people even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the lord who bought them and bring them on <clears throat> and bring them on themselves swift destruction and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Notice that Peter starts right off by identifying the false teacher's method, his method of operation. Their method of operation is secretly. Secretly is how they operate. That's the word he uses. Uh, I don't know anybody that's ever, I've gone to church pretty much my whole life, I don't know of a single time in the thousands of services that I've been a part of, and the concerts and the conferences and everything else. I can't think of a single time. Dennis, can you think of a single time when anybody walked through the, the doors of the church and said, Hey, I'm a false prophet, I'm a false teacher, and I'm here to enlighten you guys to the truth. Has that ever happened? You ever heard anybody say that? No. Because that's not how they happen. That's not how, that's not how they work. That's not how they function. No, Peter says they're going to come in secretly. They're going to they're gonna slide in, have a seat. And like I said, this sermon's going to make us squirm in our chairs a little bit so get used to that uh, if you need to get up and walk around like I do um, that's probably fine I guess they're gonna come in secretly and they're gonna bring in destructive heresies they're gonna bring in destructive heresies false teachers and false prophets don't just waltz in and say here I am rather their methods are smooth and subtle but what's the content of their message What's the content of their message? Two ways to discern false teaching is this: is what do they say about Jesus? What are they teaching about our Lord? What are they communicating? What's the, what's the whole, and what are the pieces of what they're saying about who Jesus is? And is it consistent with what the Word says? Is it, primarily is it consistent with what Jesus says about Himself? Because if they're bringing in something that, that is different than what Jesus says about himself, we're really, it really, really, really boils down to two, two possibilities. Either Jesus was a liar, or they're a liar. So it's pretty easy to just you know, bring it right down to, a, to a, two options there. But what are they saying about Jesus? And the second one is, is where does their teaching take people? Those are the two message identifiers I'm going to call them that Peter talks about in verse 1 and 2. Look at it again, even denying the Lord who bought them. So there's a denial for them, for a false teacher, false prophet, there's a denial of Jesus work on the cross, Jesus work in person. There's a denial of or in part or in whole of his death, his burial and his resurrection. There's a denial there. They take it a different way. They mean it to mean something else. Or they take a part away. You name it, there's a denial there on who Jesus is. That's why it's so important. Everything filters in for us in who Jesus is. That's our common ground. That's our baseline of operation and understanding and knowledge in the Word of God is who's Jesus. Even denying the Lord who bought them, very easy to spot the distortion of, some false teachings on who Jesus is. Some are a little more deceptive, but will take us down a pathway that ultimately leads us away from biblical teaching and the truth of who Jesus is. Those are the ones that I probably worry about more than the ones that are more blatant. Is the more subtle, the more smooth, the more enticing, the more promising in a non-biblical way a teaching can be that makes me nervous for people it really does what am I talking about well you can flip on the Christian channels on any satellite and see all kinds of promises that are made to people I'm not saying every Christian show or pastor on there is bad but you really got to listen to that content you gotta really listen and discern what are they saying, and what are they promoting, and if it's an idea that you're that God expects your life to be awesome, great, wonderful, pain free, debt free. Uh, not that we shouldn't be debt free; we should work towards that. But that somehow you're not in, in God's will if you're you know uh, not rich and wealthy, all of that type of stuff. They call it the prosperity gospel. You know that if you're sick. That if you've got injury, that if you've got, you know, pain in your life that, that, that's chronic or something, that somehow you're not in God's will and you need to do thus and so. Or if they're peddling some sort of information and the, uh, the, the real package comes when, you know, you donate ninety nine ninety nine, or, you know, three installments or whatever the case is, I get really leery. Where are they coming from? What's their motivation? If they're not willing to share the gospel for free, (laughs) should we be listening for free? That's a lot of times where my mind goes. There's a lot of stuff that's out there that is very, very subtle that will suck you in and give you a false promise, like avoiding persecution, which Jesus obviously says, and Paul and Peter and the other writers in the gospel blatantly say... You will be persecuted if you're a Christ follower. But if somebody's out there trying to promote the gospel that says that you're, you're to avoid any pain and suffering for Jesus' name, you're to avoid any trouble or tribulation, it can be really smooth and inviting. And I think in part of us, we can all say we kind of wish that that was true. But the reality is, is that we know it's not true. Regardless, Peter says that many will follow Many will follow. Many is the word that he uses in verse 2. Many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Many will follow. And it will turn people eventually away from the truth. It will turn people away. And this is the danger for us even today. That somehow we get sucked into something that leads us so far away from the truth and we believe that thing out there that's so far from the truth of God's word that then we look back or potentially could look back and say, huh, Christianity, are you kidding me? And we blaspheme the truth and we get to a point where we deny that what God says in his word is true. That's where these teachings go. That's where these false teachers, these false prophets End up leading people. Let's keep moving on. Peter goes on to debunk this myth number two that God won't punish the wicked or deliver the righteous. And he says in verse three, he says it very plainly by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. By their own covetousness, in other words, they're coveting something from you. They're coveting a following, they're coveting your money, they're coveting your attention, they're coveting your time your treasure, whatever it is, they're they're either going to work at you with that mentality, that method, that motive, or they're going to appeal to your sense of coveting, your temptation to covet, and they'll put things out there that you run after on their behalf. That's how they work. So by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. God's going to deal with them in His own time. He gives us three Old Testament examples of God dealing with this false narrative, these false teachers. Verse four, <clears throat> excuse me. Verse four says this: For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and He did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of. Of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward, afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Verse 8 says, For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. It says in verse 9, and here's your, here's your reply to the myth number two. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Three Old Testament examples Peter gives us. Bang, bang, bang. They're hard-hitting. They're fast. He combines them together in a, in a general thought. But there's three situations that Peter gives by way of example To expand on this idea that God's going to judge the wicked and save the righteous. Three situations, fallen angels. You can find that in Ezekiel twenty eight, Isaiah fourteen, or if you prefer, Genesis chapter six, talking about the sons of God marrying the coming with the sons, daughters of men. There's those three passages. There's the flood in Genesis six, eight. And then there's Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 through 19. Uh, the flood in Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 8, not chapter 6, verse 8. Let's go through them really quick. Fallen angels. Angels had a high place. We know these fallen angels as demons. That's The Bible's pretty clear about who's who here. But they had a high place. They were created in a high place with a high calling and a high purpose. Right? Uh, The flood, everybody during Noah's time, everyone was wicked before the flood. Everybody, except for Noah and his family. No exceptions. The whole world was wicked. Everybody. Like So you could do the math, I don't even know how many people that was at that point in time. It doesn't really matter, because the percentages were right up just shy of 100%. Everybody was wicked. And then Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, it's interesting because Sodom and Gomorrah is on a, a very large plain. Um, and everyone really, there was a sense of prosperity there. There was a sense that they were uh, doing well, if you want to call it, financially in that day. Um, they had a lot going on for them. And, uh, and the ground was very productive. The three lessons for us is this, is that when it comes to angels... What God's saying is no one's too high to be judged. Nobody's too high to be judged. If the angels can be judged because they rebel against God, and they were created for that high and holy purpose of worshiping Him, of being His agents in and around, in the spiritual realm, in and around uh, humanity, and if they rebelled, it's a great sign for us that nobody's too high to be judged. The second one is, is no one is judged on a curve, that's the idea with the flood. Uh, God didn't say, well, you know, we'll just, we'll just kind of flex this thing a little bit, because there, there are eight. No, he rescued the eight and he judged all the rest. So it's a real strong definition, a real strong line when it comes to judgment for wickedness. When he says, hey, I'm going to judge those that are ungodly, and I'm going to rescue or deliver those that are righteous, those that are following me, those that live according to my word in my commandments. So no one gets judged on a curve. God doesn't compare men to men. He compares men to his own standard. The third one, Sodom and Gomorrah, is that nobody's too prosperous to avoid judgment. There's a little picture there in that regard. And the Bible doesn't say a lot about the prosperity of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the reality was is that it, <clears throat> it was a kind of a special place, not because of the wickedness, but for other reasons. Nobody's too prosperous. Nobody has you know, such a great setup. Nobody has such a great city. Nobody has such a great community. They can't be so prosperous in that way that God says, well, we'll just leave them alone. They can just keep doing what they want to do. Now, I read through that this morning, about five this morning. Uh, it was an ugly time for that city. The wickedness was horrendous. And God said, I'm going to call it. I'm done with it. There was a rescue there for Lot. There was a contrast there that God delivered those that were righteous, those that had or have a righteous, or put it this way, the deliverance comes for those who have a right relationship with God. That's the idea of the word righteous. That you have a right relationship, that I have a right relationship with God. the angels that chose not to fall away still have a right relationship with, with God. Noah and his family who stayed true to God's word despite cultural pressures, despite the mocking and the, the comments, despite all of the, the pushback that he endured for all the time he was building the ark, he stayed true to God's word. And Lot, though he's tormented as and oppressed as he was, it's interesting that Peter says, and God delivered righteous lot. It's kind of hard to put together in a sentence, but Peter does. He says, hey, hey, this guy, this guy, he, he walked a really tough, tough, tough road for his day. And Peter calls him righteous lot. In other words, he had the right relationship with God. All were delivered, Verse 9 goes on to say, and then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to preserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Peter's message is kind of summarized this way. If wickedness was accounted for in the past, it will be in the present and the future also. So the minute that we think that maybe things are getting a little out of control, we just need to be patient and let God do what only God can do. We have a responsibility. It doesn't mean that we do nothing. We sit back in our easy chair. We lock ourselves up. We make sure that we're, we're well fortified away from society. Uh, that's not it at all. Our job is to continue like Noah did, to live righteously, to follow God's word in the midst of a very, very corrupt society. And that's where we find ourselves today. Now, Peter's going to get on quite the tirade here. And I'm going to read through at least a few verses, and we'll talk about it a little bit. We'll go a little further and uh, conclude. So Peter continues tying these things together. He says in verse 10, And especially those who walk in the flesh. So talking about those who are going to be held for judgment. He's saying, especially, especially. He puts all kinds of emphasis on this idea, especially those who walk in the flesh. Those who walk in the flesh, according to the flesh, in the lust of uncleanliness. Make sure you make note. I don't know if it's highlighted up on the screen, but I got it in my notes. All of the descriptive language that he puts here on false teachers and false prophets. Verse 10, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanliness and despise authority. They're presumptuous, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So far, far, even going back to verse 1, there's ten false teacher qualities that Peter lists here. I'll give them to you in straight order. They work in secret. They have destructive ways. They appeal to... Either their own, they work out of their own or appeal to our uh, desire to covet. They exploit people with deception. They walk according to the flesh. In the lust of uncleanliness, they despise authority. Presumptuous, self-willed, and they speak evil of dignitaries. And I'm telling you, Peter is only getting warmed up. That's only 10. There's 33 des- descriptions of false teachers in this In this, uh Chapter in Second Peter. 33. We were, all, we're a third of the way through. And he's saying, hey, this is what their character is going to be like. He only gives us two. He only gives us two indications of what their message is about. What they teach. What they communicate. But he's going to give us 33 descriptions of their character. That should, alone should be shocking to us. And it should give us pause and it should give us... Uh, motivation really to examine not only our own motives but uh, and but other people's character as well. Our focus on our own character and how God's changing us as individuals and us as a church. Peter's only getting warmed up. Earl Nash used to say that, um, talking about despising the authority, he used to say, tell me, he said, Mark, he says, Our culture has gotten to the point where those in authority are now the whipping post of the rebellious. I think it's a pretty solid, straightforward explanation of how our culture operates. That those in authority, those that are in a place of leadership, become the whipping post of the rebellious at heart. How does this play out in our culture? How does this play out in our society? How does this, how does this uh, affect who we are as a people or who we are as a people of God? It's staggering. You know one of the things that I notice, and I know David mentioned these kids sitting up front and, and all these kids that have got their eyes glued up here. You know what their temptation is in the current culture? That wasn't this way when I was your guys' age. There's a temptation for kids these days to never rise up into a place of leadership because they don't want to be mocked by their peers. That wasn't that way when I was your age, Emmett. It was something to be attained to. That if you were the best on the team, that if you worked hard, that if you, that if you, you know, dedicated yourself, that there was, some, there was some good and wholesome recognition to being good at what you, were, what you were working on. And it didn't matter what it was. It didn't matter if it's you know, memorizing verses. It didn't matter if it's being on the swim team. It didn't matter if it's playing baseball. It didn't matter if it was you just had a real good, solid uh, reputation for being a good worker. And people wanted to hire you. But now, in our culture, your kids or your grandkids do not want to be people that will rise up and say, Hey, I'm willing to lead. They don't want to do it because they don't want to get shamed from behind. This is what's going on. And I see it every day. I see it every day in our culture. I see it every time when we start football season. And there's always a few, there will be a few. But it's hard to get kids to step up and take responsibility because they don't want to get knifed in the back. They don't want to be the whipping post for their generation. Because this is what's normal in our society. So they despise authority is the way that Peter says it. And let me tell you, there's not a one of us sitting in this room that likes to be despised. I will guarantee that for sure. I think we have to get past that. I think that we have to move beyond that. I think that you guys are doing a tremendous job teaching your kids to press forward through that barrier and say, no, we're taking a stand right here and right now. Like Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to what? We're going to serve. Raise your voices up. As for me and my house, we're what? Serve the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord. And so we're taking a stand. We're taking a stand for our family. And we're going to stand solid. And we're not going to stand in our own power. We're going to stand in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to say, no, this is my dominion. God has gifted me with this family, with this home, with this responsibility, and I'm going to take it serious, and I don't care whether, and this is where I'm at, I don't really care whether people despise me for that or not. Because my identity is not propped up by what they think, or how they would respond, or whatever stupid thing you want to put on social media. My identity is propped up in Jesus Christ. This is why the message of the gospel is so central and so important. And sometimes really hard to, to sift through where people are at. But the sifting has to happen. The despised authority. I would just want to pull that one out of that list of ten. Somehow it's uh, front and center on my mind. Let's move on. Verse 12. I've got to move really quick. I'm really going to have to talk fast like Katie does. All right. no I'm not kidding that's one of the things I really appreciate about Katie first time I met Katie Weithman I thought I was at an auction we're, remember that we're sitting having dinner at a Mexican restaurant and she's just and I thought I leaned over and I told Tammy I said I finally found somebody that can talk faster than my own sisters it's Katie Weithman I can't even understand what she's saying but she's having a great time I love that story. Verse 12. Back to the false teachers. False prophets. But these, Peter says, but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. He's starting to swing the splitting mall here. These like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. And will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Their spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and have gone astray. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackest of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who will live in air. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has now happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. I told you it was going to make you squirm. Makes me squirm, and I've read through it a dozen times. The character of those that we get information from, the character of those who we sit under their teaching should really make us sit up and take notice I've been talking for years about the transparency in the church if there's a reason that transparency is so vital today that we get to know one another to the point where we can have the interactions and, and, and healthy confrontations and a rebuke, we, we, we cringe at that word rebuke, but it's really a healthy thing. I've had people come and speak to me and give me a rebuke that I needed. I could have said, no, not going to hear you. I don't need to hear you. It's not necessary. No, it was necessary. And me stopping and in humility saying, no, you're right, is a course correction that needs to happen in the church on a regular basis it really does but it doesn't happen and so this kind of atrocities these this kind of spiritual carnage and life carnage happens way 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 more than it needs to and nothing's really changed in two thousand years these guys are brute beasts they take pleasure in carousing the carouse and the deception, that's that's a painful description of people. That's a painful reality to have to live out. And I don't say it to make it painful. I say it only as a way that probably hopefully, like Peter would say it, that this is the reality of where false teachers really are in, in and of themselves and in their character. Eyes full of adultery. He says, they cannot cease from sin. That's a, that's a huge statement. That's a huge statement. Not that they won't stop. Not that they shouldn't stop. He's saying, hey, these false teachers and whatever's motivating them, whatever's pushing their agenda in, in, in their circles and, and, and what they're promoting, like, this is one of the attributes for somebody that's a false teacher. That there's sin that does not stop. The train's left the station, and there's no brakes. They cannot cease from sinning. That's a huge, huge indictment towards false teachers. Not only can they not stop sinning, but they entice the people that are the most unstable. They entice the unstable souls, Peter calls them. That's pretty low. Not only do they have major issues in and of their own walk and their own life, but they're going after the most vulnerable. And we wonder why this is such a reproach to God. I'll tell you why. Because when, when Israel stepped out of uh, Egypt, when their, their first confrontation in the wilderness was from the Amalekites. And the Amalekites didn't come to them and say, all right, guys, you know, let's, let's go toe-to-toe, man to man Let's square up like you know, like warriors should. That wasn't their method. The Amalekites came after Israel from behind so they could attack the most vulnerable first. This is why this is such an affront to God, I believe. Because we're coming after the people that are most vulnerable. You look around you, or you look, take a walk downstairs, you're going to see the most vulnerable. Or those of us that are, are new in our faith, brand new believers. This is why discipleship is so important that's why mentorship is so important in the church is to help those that are in that most spiritually vulnerable spot they're brand new in the faith you don't know what you don't know until you get an opportunity to study and learn and spend time with people around you it's a critical element but it's a complete atrocity to God the way that these people are working furthermore not only do they entice the most unstable Go after the weak, but there is a preparation in their method and in their character. So it's not a random act of taking advantage of somebody that doesn't know who Jesus is or knows very little or is not solid in their understanding. It's not just that that is bad, but Peter says their hearts are trained. In other words, they, they, have, they have taken, false teachers, false prophets, have taken intentional measures to go this direction. Whatever motivation it is, I don't know. It can be any of the four that I mentioned or something else, I guess. But they've taken intentional measures to be deceptive. That's pretty abominable. Wouldn't you say? Your hearts are trained in covetous practice. followed the way of Balaam. They love the wages of unrighteousness. Peter goes on to say they're wells without water. You know what the problem is with a well without water? There's actually kind of two aspects to it that are um, pretty dangerous. One, one, there's nothing refreshing about a well with no water. It's a huge, huge disappointment. Huge disappointment. To show up, and I mean in the context of the first century where every time they wanted something to drink, every time they wanted some water, they had to go do it by hand, (whistles) drop the thing down, splash, (whistles) roll her back up. There was a process to it. They didn't just turn the faucet on. They didn't just push a button on the fridge and ice and water come out. There was a process to it. You walk five miles to go get a glass of water and you show up at a well where there's no water, you're going to be frustrated. Peter's saying this is, what, this is a picture of what false prophets and teachers are like. They're wells without water. There's going to be a disappointment there. The other thing is, is there's a danger there because a well without water is nothing more than a deep hole in the ground that you can't get back out of. So he kind of gives them this dual look at what these false teachers, false prophets are like. Wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, The thought of maybe some soothing rain, but nothing really there. They speak great swelling words of emptiness. They allure through the lust of the flesh. They work through lewdness. They promise liberty. This one is huge. This is where I think that we have to be so careful in our culture to keep our eyes focused on Christ. There's a promise of liberty, but are themselves slaves to corruption. That plays out in a lot of ways in our culture today. You, know exa- you can turn on C-SPAN and know exactly what's going on in Washington, D.C. as it's happening. And you can sit there and you can listen to promises of liberty. Promises of liberty. promises of Promises of liberty shooting across the land. And the same people that are getting up there and puffing up their chest and giving all of this hope... And and an agenda for the people are the same people that they themselves are corrupt. So we have to know there's a big. We've got some great ideas floating around about how we need to know the people that are representing us. We have to be involved with them so we have an idea of who they are, what they really stand for, what what is on their agenda that's really important that. That clicks or meshes with us or doesn't, so we can speak into it, maybe change their mind a little bit. But if we just sit back and just have a hope and a prayer that whatever that guy at the microphone is saying is somehow going to make you more liberated or me more liberated, when in reality they struggle with all the same stuff, it's a massive disappointment. It's a massive disappointment. And I'm not talking just about politics. I'm talking about the reality that there's people out there that, that uh, preach a gospel that is not a true gospel. And they're peddling a false liberty that's not the true liberty that's found in Jesus Christ. We have to have our spiritual antennas tuned in and know the truth because it's the truth that will set us free from this type of false liberty and turn from it, walk away, no thanks. These types of people, and this is a pretty uh, condemning word and should make us sit up in our chair and take note when Peter says, it's better that they didn't have the knowledge of Jesus than to know and turn away. That's a pretty heavy statement. That's a, that's a pretty condemning, solid statement about somebody that has been taught the truth and has turned from the truth, Peter's saying, hey, it's, it's, it's better that he didn't know. It's like Jesus talking about Judas. Hey, it'd probably been better if he wasn't born. That's a heavy statement. But the reality is, is, that's how much damage, that's how serious, that's an emphatic statement by Peter to say, this is how serious this is. That it's better off that they just didn't know about Jesus than to you know, learn and have some level of knowledge and then intentionally create a, some sort of system or method or message to lead people away. We need to know these things. We need to understand these things so we can apply these truths and take these warnings to heart. Uh, can somebody run down and grab the kids for Sunday school from children's church? Can I get anybody Kirby. Will you do that for me, please? Thank you. Two observations as we close out here. Two observations, and not the two observations that Peter makes out of the true proverbs of the dog returning to vomit and the clean sow back to the mud. Uh, no, here's, a, here's an observation that I had, actually. Is This is Peter's one last chance to speak to the church about real dangers that they're going to face. Remember last week when I said. If, if you had just a short period of time. To say the last things that you would want to say. What, how, what would those be? And how would you frame those statements? How would, you, how would you put it together to say the most important things possible. To the people that you want to talk to. Well Peter's kind of in that spot. He's, he's in that spot. He's knowing his time is going to come to an end. Chapter 1 tells us. And so he really wants to talk about the real dangers that the church would face. And Peter's message is really kind of on par with Old Testament prophets and <clears throat> is conveyed through the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. right? In other words, he's, he's laying it out there just like an Old Testament prophet. Here's what's wrong. Here's what the problem is. You didn't repent. You got off into false teaching. You're into idol worship. You know, you're following other gods. You've committed spiritual adultery to God. That's the, kind of the language that the Old Testament prophets would use. They would just like breathe fire on the people of Israel because of their sinful ways. And, and there was a cycle to it. In other words, there's a kind of a cycle to the, all of the Old Testament. Where you, have the, you have the children of God, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew children, God's people in a good relationship. In, in right relationship with God and as time goes on they kind of start staring over the fence seeing what the neighbors are doing seeing who the neighbors are, are worshiping and so they kind of they kind of lean into that a little bit and say well man that doesn't look so bad so let's just go do some of that and so they rebel against God's word so then they get out of relationship with God and coming through the bottom of the circle uh, things really start to suck for Israel because they're, they're in rebellion to God so they have no protection from God. They have no leading from God. No word from God. No, uh, no blessing from God because they've ignored and rebelled from His ways and all of a sudden they start to discover, man, this is really bad. What are we going to do? This is really, really b-. And about that time when the Old Testament prophets come in and just <sighs> flay them all with the solid word from the Lord and tell them they need to Repent. Tell them they need to get right with the Lord. Tell them they got to get back in right relationship with God because their sin is standing between them and the Heavenly Father. So they'd bring this harsh word, just like Peter has done today. They'd bring this heavy word with a call to repentance, with with a call to be right with God and in right relationship with God. They would repent, and guess what? They'd start getting back up on top. In that sweet spot, the relationship with God, and they start being blessed by God, and they start prospering because they're following God. And so, and so, and so it goes until the next time <laughs> that they start staring around at other gods, start thinking that those gods are better than their own. This was Peter's one last chance to speak to the church, to bring a powerful Old Testament-like, prophet-like message And it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is His word, not just for them, but this is God's word for us today. To take in, to take with seriousness, with take with soberness, as Peter said in previous chapters, in previous verses. And if there's any way to summarize the character of false prophets, it's exactly the opposite of how we should be operating today as Christ's followers. Because false prophets, false te- teachers put the flesh over the faith, put flesh, th- their flesh up as the thing. So the flesh is greater than faith, and I'm talking specifically faith in God, faith that the Bible tells us to, to live by. They put that flesh up there. If you look at this list, if you look at this list, it's all an appeal to the flesh. No, we are to live as Christ's followers. We are to live by faith over flesh. Faith in Jesus over the motivations of the world. I'll close with this verse. The worship team will come on up. 1 John 2, 15-17. The Apostle John tells us this. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world which is exactly what these false teachers were all about. It's exactly what they were motivated by. Worldly methods. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's a description of a false prophet, false teacher, false believer. For if all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. There's our hope. There's our promise. There's the rock that we stand on. He who does the will of the Father, he who does God's will... And we all are called to do God's will. It's not just me. Not just the elders or the deacons. Everybody else shows up to watch the concert. That's not it at all. We're all to be actively seeking, participating, operating in God's will. If you're a Christ follower in any form or fashion. That's what we're supposed to be about. And all of the rest of this is going to fade away. And I believe that God has gifted this church, I think God has gifted you and will grow you in the knowledge to be able to discern. If you're sitting here saying, I, I, I'm still a little fuzzy about who's who when it comes to the reality of how do, I, how do I apply this on Tuesday? Seek the Lord. Ask God for knowledge. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God to bring these, these verses or these character qualities or this false message to your mind. This week, when you're not sure, and get used to operating in truth so that when the air comes when the false teachers come when the false prophets show up in our society that they just stand out it's it's unmistakable who they are and we don't have to like you know kind of dabble in it to see that it's wrong we can know that it's wrong because we know the truth not because we have to live through the carnage that's my encouragement as we close today I'll go ahead and pray now and we'll uh, close with a worship song. Father, we just uh, thank you for your word even as tough as it is sometimes. That you have hope at the and a light at the end of the tunnel for your people. That you love us so much that you give us these heavy heavy passages, 33 character traits of what somebody who does not love you or know you looks like. And it's heavy, God. We we are uh, We understand that. We get it. But we actually, it's because you love us that you tell us these things. Because you don't want us to depart. You don't want us to slip and fall. You don't want us to fade away. You don't want us to believe something that's not your truth. And so we're so appreciative of the fact that you love us, you care for us. That you warn us. That you guide us and direct us, even through difficult examples. And so we're so glad, Father, that in you we can be that uh, part of that body that is being delivered from these lusts and things of the world, lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, that you deliver your people from that, that we don't have to struggle with that, that we don't have to uh, uh, always be consumed by that or succumb to that pressure no in our identity and you father we're we're grateful that we can live fresh and true in true liberty with our brand new identity found in jesus christ so thank you we praise you father go with each one today we'll close with a song we praise you today father in jesus name would you stand with us